0: From Advisory Board, we are bringing you a radio advisory. My name is Rachel Woods. You can call me Ray. COVID-19 forced stakeholders to actually work together in new and different ways. In the last year, we've seen better care coordination, more cooperation, and more efficient resource deployment than perhaps ever before. This act of systemness was a long-awaited, but honestly elusive goal for healthcare leaders. The question now is, how do we keep those practices going and apply them to strategies beyond the crisis? To talk about how systemness is driving population health efforts, I've brought Dr. Alicia Cole, the System Vice President of Population Health Innovation and Policy at Common Spirit. Welcome to Radio Advisory, Alicia. I feel like I've been seeing your voice and your name lots of places, but have you ever been on a podcast before?
1: I have actually been on a podcast before, so this
0: is really exciting. Thank you very much. How having many? It. I feel like I'm I'm like the 10th in the list at this point.
1: No, I think you're actually still in the top 10.
0: So, okay. yeah. <laughs> You are joining us from a unique organization, right? Common Spirit Health is one of the largest not-for-profit health systems in the entire country. Level set with me for a minute. How big are we talking here?
1: Yes. Thank you, Ray. Um, And being that it's still a a fairly new organization, I still get the question a lot, where is that? Who are you? Um, So just to level set, uh, Common Spirit Health is the strategic partnership of Dignity Health and Catholic Health Initiatives. Um, And so with that combination, we are now actually in 21 states. Uh, We Mm. have over 137 hospitals, uh, but we are a a fully integrated care delivery system. So we have over a thousand care sites in pretty much almost half the country.
0: And you mentioned that the partnership is new, but I also think your role is new, right? I think you're the the first system VP of population health. And this role did come out of, like you said, a major merger. What has that been like?
1: Yeah, so I'm actually the first of uh, many first um, because the population health division was an intentional creation of the, uh, the new organization. And so uh, there are a couple of new system vice presidents. Uh, my role is over innovation and policy. Um, but we have a whole entirely new division. And um, it it was an intentional and strategic
0: um, decision to put this Mm -hmm. work at the corporate level. Exactly. Because it sounds like to me that the result is more structure, right? A more formalized approach to population health and even broader health equity than it sounds like either individual organization had before. I want to ask, Would this have been possible without resources from both
1: orgs? So the great thing about both organizations is that they were already doing amazing work uh, in this space, both from a population health and a health equity standpoint. But the combination did allow for this intentionality, um, for it to really become a root of our foundational operational structure, and really for us to move our new mission forward, which is to care for the vulnerable. Um, and without having the um, additional resources that the organization uh, was able to create by coming together, uh, th- this wouldn't have been
0: possible. So, when it comes to population health, how would you describe the goal of Common Spirit, and what makes the the kind of strategy and operations of Pop Health different at Common Spirit compared to what we see with other organizations?
1: Yeah, so I would say one of the biggest things that sets us apart is our scale. Yeah. And our size and our scope and quite frankly the diverse populations. Uh, that we do. In fact, serve. it's
0: probably the most diverse population
1: <laughs> that a health system serves. Yes, we serve everything from urban to big academic medical centers to uh, small rural critical access hospitals, um, and everything in between. Right, so mm-hmm. we have to take geography into account. Uh, we have to take a uh, very diverse from a race, ethnicity, um, age, gender. I mean, every market for us is so different. Um, and so mm-hmm. how do you, um, for us in population health, uh, we re- really look at how do we standardize certain elements and how do we bring certain resources across the entire enterprise, but allow for that local market autonomy, um, because we really do truly believe that healthcare at the end of the day is local. Yeah. Um, and so that that's uh, one of the, the goals that we have. We also are focused on really helping our organization move into more value-based care arrangements. Um, And and currently, we have over 2.5 million lives that we serve um, that are in value-based contracts.
0: Hmm. So, yeah, you mentioned scale. And, And honestly, if I think about where we started, right, the size and scale of an organization like yours, I can honestly spin that as a positive or as a negative, right? On the positive side, you now have this structure of a common mission and vision as it relates to population health and all of its manifestations, whether we're talking about value-based payment, whether we're talking about health equity. The downside, though, is size itself, right? Implementing any kind of common strategy is hard enough at one hospital, let alone at 137 hospitals (laughs) and counting. Is that challenge something that you've experienced? Uh, I would be lying if I said no.
1: (laughs) And I think all systems that are going through these mergers and strategic partnerships and combinations um, are experiencing the same thing. Uh, We refer to it as systemness. Um, So how how do you build in that systems uh, thinking while at the same time, like I said, allowing for that uh, local market autonomy?
0: You perked my ears because you said one of my favorite words. And anybody who's read anything that we've done at Advisory Board knows that, There is a lot of focus on systemness, and and I kind of think about that as an organization's ability to kind of overcome challenges and make progress because of its scale, not in spite of it. And people talk about systemness in a whole host of different ways, but in my mind, and I'm curious what you think about this, the ultimate execution of systemness is being able to inflect the outcomes of an entire population, and a population that quite literally is you know coast to coast. Do you agree with that kind of definition?
1: Yes, that is uh, spot on. <laughs> I couldn't have explained it better. So, so thank you for that. And, and we are. Um, really being thoughtful about how do we encourage systemness? How do we really embed that thinking? Because it is a different way to think uh, for for a lot of people. So how do we embed that thinking?
0: Yeah. It's not just an abstract concept, right? It requires a systemized approach to actually implementing systemness, if I can say two confusing words at the same time. So from our perspective, one of the foundational elements of how you do systemness well comes down to leadership and the kind of leadership structures themselves. How does the structure when it comes to population health work at Common Spirit? How does it cascade across so many different areas?
1: Yes, so we have a corporate kind of an enterprise level population health function Um, But we also have connections all the way down to every local market. And so one of the things that we realized as we were all coming together and again, brand new um, and most of us knew from outside of either of the legacy organizations. um, So making those connections and building those relationships with local leaders was critically important. Yeah. Uh, and we wanted to make sure that we did that um, in a strategic way. And so uh, one of the frameworks that we set up was an establishment of different councils. Um, so, hmm. for example, I have a vulnerable population council uh, that I set up that is made up of a physician, of a clinical and administrative leaders um, all across the entire spectrum of the organization. So, wow, cor- corporate all the way down to local. Um, And our focus is really about how do we uh, take better care of our vulnerable populations, whether that's from a policy issue, from a process issue, from a clinical care delivery um, issue. Um, And so we meet on a monthly basis uh, to really talk through, um, you know, the strategy around our vulnerable populations and the operations, the execution, (laughs) this one thing that have the strategy, but you have to have that local market buy-in in order to execute.
0: And I imagine one of the big conversations at one of those council meetings has to be how do we decide what to do next, especially if you have representation from local leaders and the corporate office. And again, prioritizing is difficult at any institution, let alone one of this size. So how do you actually surface kind of best practices from the local areas and decide which ones do we want to make consistent across our whole market?
1: Yes. So there's a couple of different ways. And, and and again, this is one of those areas where I do think it's important for the local market leaders to be the ones helping to drive those conversations, um, because often, or I would say what we found is that Nine times out of 10, what one market may be dealing with is another market is also dealing with it as well, maybe just with some nuanced differences.
0: Mm, Even with all the diversity that you described. Even
1: with all the diversity. So for example, right now, equitable COVID vaccine distribution um, is something that has been very consistent across every market. Now it may be for different reasons, right? In our rural markets, um, it, it, it's um, tending to be our elderly population that we're trying to make sure that they have access to getting the um, the vaccine. In some of our urban markets, it may be um, some uh, communities of color um, that we're really trying to encourage, and you know, and, and there there may be other barriers, right? So the barriers may be a little bit different, but the the issue. <laughs> Has, has been this consistent across all our markets.
0: Or maybe the process is consistent, whereas the people that are identified as being maybe resistant to getting a vaccine or have legitimate hesitancy, like you described with communities of color, it's a matter of setting up a process that would identify those people, even though it might be different organization to organization or, or area to area.
1: Well, yeah, the people, um, the process, and even our own internal process, I think that's been one of the things, even when we have seen um, that, for example, in certain markets, communities of color aren't hesitant. They weren't hesitant. It was just yeah. they couldn't get onto the website um, to you know, go in and, and figure out how to <laughs> sign up, or they didn't actually have transportation to get to the mass community vaccination site. So but but really focusing on that work allowed us to figure out like, what what really are the barriers um, in the markets that we have. But what we agreed upon as far as standardizing uh, was the data collection, for example, mm-hmm. we're going to collect data around vaccine distribution um, in the same manner. We're going to you know, stratify it by race, ethnicity, gender and um, zip code. Um, so looking at social vulnerability index um, and making sure that those community members were getting the vaccine as well. So um, so that's just one example of where we at the kind of national population health level really helped out um, in regards to data and the standardization of the data. And then also the sharing the best practices. So when we like, for example, in our L.A. market, they, they held a mass community um, vaccination event with. Um, the NAACP in one of the um, historically black college and universities there. Um, and that partnership really increased the number of community members of color um, who received the vaccine. So um, so we were able to share that across, you know other markets
0: to say, hey, have you reached out? Yeah, how did you share that? because right that that best practice sharing is something that, I think could be a massive benefit to an organization like this if you can actually do it in a structured way. Yes.
1: Yes. Um, So we have uh, regularly scheduled meetings (laughs) for our leadership uh, that happen on a monthly basis. And one of the things that we also did was create a website. Uh, And so we have the CommonSpiritPopHealth.org website. Um, where it's open to the public to see some of the work that we're doing, but it also has a membership um, uh, portion to that. So all of our providers, our leaders are able to sign into that and then access toolkits and resources and hmm. data um, whenever they feel like it. Right. <laughs> so that's a that's a twenty four hour access to to information because that was one of the things that we heard from our our local markets was you know how do we learn about this and how do we do it in in real time, uh, so we may not necessarily have to wait to the next vulnerable population council meeting, for example.
0: Yes, exactly. So that way, I'm gonna I'm gonna make up an example. But if a if a practice in the West Coast is saying we're really struggling to reengage our patients and get them to come back, they could go onto this website and find another practice that has figured out you know the marketing technique or whatever it is to get folks to reengage, and say that's what I'm gonna do next. Yes. Yes,
1: And we even go so far to even offer if we've created certain patient materials, education materials, even marketing our collateral materials, you know all of that is is located on that website so people can access that and they don't have to spend time and energy recreating something.
0: We'll be right back with more radio advisory after this short break. COVID-19 vaccine updates are coming at us fast and furious. Let us help you focus on the most important headlines, make sense of them for your organization and patients, and maximize the success of your vaccine initiatives. Visit advisory.com slash COVID-19 for resources focused on your vaccine acceptance and administration and for other tools designed to support you in the ongoing battle against COVID-19. You've used the word standardization a few times, and standardization is a a necessary component of the systemness we're talking about. But I think there's also a fear that standardization can go too far. And and you've even said that the normal variation that would happen at a local market is something that is not only necessary, but, but encouraged. So how do you balance the need for standardization while also providing the variability that local markets might need and want?
1: Yeah, I think ultimately, uh, all of us who went into healthcare went into this industry because we want to help people get better and stay well, right? Um, And so one of the things that we have found that's been really helpful is to always lead with kind of this patient-first, community-first mindset. And then really having conversations around what do we believe if we standardize X, Y, and Z, will this drive improvement in health outcomes or our community outcomes, right? Um, And so by always kind of leading with that, that's been really helpful to frame conversations. Um, But there are two areas that I would say we consistently continue to push around standardization, and that's data. Uh, And Mm -hmm. so the data, data integrity is so critically important. So how do we collect data? How do we analyze it, et cetera? Um, And then evidence-based clinical practices, right? Um, And so we want to make sure that if we know there are best practices out there that are evidence-based that actually improve health outcomes, how do we make sure that those are being consistently applied across all of our care delivery sites? Um, Because Ultimately, that's what we're here to do, right, is make Mm -hmm. people better
0: and keep people well. So said another way, there has to be a standard for standardization. And with the two examples you said in mind, that's a way to keep defending the standard approach is actually the best approach for outcomes here, for patients, for the community. Yes. I want to come back to this concept about prioritization. So you can prioritize efforts kind of at a national level, but you can also prioritize at a clinical level. And when I talk population health with a lot of organizations, they often tell me something like this. They say, we have a couple of examples of where we do, say, care management really, really well. We do it really, really well in oncology, or maybe even for just these clinical scenarios within oncology. But their next question is, how do we scale that across different clinical scenarios? Or how do we decide what's the next one that we need to expand to? How do you make that call and balance prioritization with pushing for more scale? Yes, that's a great question. And I think it's one that we are
1: actively still in the process of figuring out, but there are definitely some things that we have landed upon. Um, the first thing I would say is that it is a a, a multidisciplinary uh, team uh, that comes together to help make those decisions., um, and those decisions are being led by our clinicians. Um, hmm. And so um, that's one of the key areas that ha- has been, um, Wonderful to see, um, and and those goals are once decided upon, they end up being board level goals. So that's another thing when you think about accountability. Um, you know, you have to build that that accountability framework into the work that you're doing as well. Yeah, but there are certain things like, for example, we are looking at hypertension and diabetes because we know that those are two medical chronic conditions um, that drive. So many things, right? So they drive poor health outcomes. They drive increased costs um, for both the patient and the community, and and also our health systems. Um, and so, how do we really help support um, our community members who may have that diagnosis and keeping uh, their blood pressure or their diabetes under control? And also, how do we support um, others who don't have that diagnosis and keeping them well so they don't end up getting that? So. It's so many different um, layers to it. Um, One of the other things that we did was also establish a national community health team. Hmm. Um, And so I think that's another key critical component, because, again, as we're speaking, you know, we're, we're moving toward value based care. I think everyone in the country recognizes that. Um, I, I hope no one has still has their head in the sand. Uh, <laughs> but um, w- if you're thinking about value-based care, we're really moving an industry from one that thinks about illness and disease, right, to, to, mm-hmm. to one that really does have to focus on wellness and prevention. And so having a r- really strong community health division or department to help you in that space, um, I think is also critically important. And that was one of the other corporate level functions that was established with the uh, with the uh, combination.
0: And, and by the way, I do think that most folks would agree with you and say that moving to alternative payment models, moving to more value-based care is something that is inevitable in the healthcare industry. But the reality that most leaders and most organizations, including Common Spirit, have is a hybrid business model right? And you have a lot of of money tied up in value-based payments, but still in fee-for-service. So I'm going to come back to prioritizing, scaling, making decisions on what to do next. How do you do that in a hybrid fee-for-service and value-based care business model?
1: Yeah, so the great thing about population health is that it actually works whether you're in a in a fee for service model or a value-based care model. Um, and that's really from a financial standpoint, one of the things that we've been really thoughtful about building those population health principles into our models. So it does make sense.
0: Give me an example of that from the fee for service perspective. I'm gonna I'm gonna wear the hat of the naysayer. That is, volumes have been depressed for the last 14 months. Yep, this is gonna happen to me in the future. But I just need all my surgical beds full right now because I need enough money to pay my doctors.
1: One of the great things that we have realized, um, and that has actually been elevated during COVID, um, has been the need for uh, patient navigation. Yep. And that's something that from a population health standpoint, uh, we have been supporting for many years. A lot of people are more familiar with that in the oncology space, Um, but we were actually able to extend that to our uh, maternal service and our orthopedic service. So to your question around, you know, I need... You know, heads in beds. One of the things that we recognized with one of our uh, virtual patient navigation uh, tools was that we were able to decrease length of stay for our moms who delivered and for uh, uh, individuals who are coming in for elective uh, hip and knees. Um, and so, as we all know, if you're able to get the length of stay down, um, one, it's it's better, um, especially as a lot of our hospitals, from a joint perspective, are in somewhat of a value based model. But also, we're able to turn those beds over, right? So you have more yep. availability mm-hmm. um, for people who do need to come in, or you know, who do need to, you know, more people access, improving
0: access to being able to have those, especially in our orthopedic space, or or even getting people to come back to the same organization again and again, right? I think that that in, in the last episode we had uh, with Auctioner Health, uh, the CEO, Warner Thomas, rightfully pointed out that the healthcare industry is more fragmented than maybe ever before. So something like navigation is important for making sure that patient shows up for their second and third and, and so on dialysis appointment. But it's also important to make sure that young commercial patient actually chooses your organization again and again, as opposed to CVS or the other health system down the street or the independent physician group or whoever, right?
1: Right, right. And being able to provide the type of care that that consumer, if you will, is interested in versus you know, maybe a boomer who is like, no, I want to go in and see my my doctor face-to-face. Um, so, you know, one of the other things that we were able to support revving up from a pop health standpoint were virtual visits, right? And so that was something from an innovation standpoint, we've been pushing for a while. Um, and, you know, one of the things, the good things, if you will, that has come from COVID um, has been this ability to accelerate, uh, being, uh, you know, delivering care virtually. Yep. Absolutely.
0: Throughout our conversation, we've been talking about population health specifically, which is a small slice of some bigger initiatives that I know that you and ultimately Common Spirit are focusing on, right? You mentioned value based care as one of them, but there's also things like a larger social determinants of health strategy and ultimately a larger health equity strategy. How does the work you're doing in population health? connect back to those larger initiatives?
1: Yeah. So one of the reasons that I joined Common Spirit Health was because of their commitment to equity and justice and um, this, this intentional um, thought process around how do we better care for our vulnerable populations. And so as a practicing family medicine physician, um, that has been my whole career. I've worked in underserved areas, um, both rural and urban and so that's what I have always felt called to do. And so coming to an organization that, one, has health equity built into its strategic priorities um, is just amazing. Um, and part of that work is, is focusing on social determinants of health. So in and, and a couple of different areas, right? So the first one, clinical, you know, being a physician, I'll start there. <laughs> How are we assessing our patients for social determinants of health? Something that definitely
0: requires a systemized approach.
1: Oh my goodness, yes. <laughs> and and then how are we um, making sure that if we are screening or assessing and and something you know is positive? Always my my physician colleagues are like, well, what do I do if it's positive? You know, we always want to be able to do something, yeah. right? So, what resources do we have in place to be able to refer patients um, and make sure that the connections are made? And so. Um, One of the things that our community health division has really been strong is developing something called our Connected Community Network, um, which really does um, do exactly what I said. So if we're screening uh, something's positive, these networks are in the local communities. They're built upon the resources that are available in those communities. Um, And so it's a way for for me as the physician or the clinician to uh, make that referral um to a community-based organization. Um, and, and often hear back um, to, to say, you know, oh, the patient was able to keep the referral or, you know, they did go to the food bank and was able to receive food. And then, you know, ultimately our goal would be as we are continuing to um, assess and refer, connect uh, and you know, hopefully improve on that social determinant, we also start to see changes in health outcomes. So in a patient with diabetes, for example, if they're food insecure and we're able to get them food secure, do we see an improvement in their in their blood sugar con- control? So, so there's clinical, but then there's also, and this is one of the things I really strongly encourage all hospitals and health systems to think about. There is also the role of us in communities as anchor institutions. You know, often you know we have been in those communities for many many years. Um, and not only do we have this healthcare delivery uh, responsibility, we, we often tend to have an economic impact, right? We, we sometimes tend to be the largest
0: employers mm-hmm. um, in those areas. And therefore, the entity that is, I'm going to use the word responsible, for supporting the broader community, whether we're talking about patients or not, or whether we're talking about patients that are in your physician office or not.
1: Right, right. And, and definitely for nonprofits, we have been supporting the community through our community benefit work for forever, right? Um, and then, you know, with the, the uh, need to do community health needs assessments, uh, we've been doing those, um, for a couple of years now. And so we have that information, all that robust information from the community members themselves saying, this is what we need help with. So how do we as, you know, large, you know, economic drivers, if you will, within local communities have more intentional partnerships um, with community organizations to really improve the, the social determinants that you know we're we're hearing from the community that they need help with. Or if we're doing the screening, we're able to look at that data as well and say, well, you know what, our patients in this market are really struggling with food insecurity or housing insecurity. Um, so how do we now take our Economic, uh, you know, framework or impact, if you will, and apply it directly to housing or apply it directly to food, and so that's work that we're also doing.
0: I want to take it to a broader equity framework for a moment. So, so your CEO Lloyd Dean has been pretty pretty blunt here, right? And actually expressed a goal of confronting racism in healthcare what do you see as your department's role in combating the way that that institutionalized racism manifests in health?
1: Yes. So a couple of different things that we're working on in in that space. Uh, One is just education and awareness, um, especially for our providers, Um, just recognizing the the history of medicine and race uh, in this country Yeah. Um, You know, I'm still amazed. But then I tell people all the time, I didn't get that training in medical school. You know, (laughs) I had to learn that myself. Or um, fortunately, I went to a residency program that was focused on urban underserved. And so my curriculum there really um, had a health equity uh, foundation. Um, But that's not a consistent or a standardized uh, curriculum, if you will, in both undergrad or med school. Um, So I think, there's there's that opportunity. And we're actually that's one of the things we're working on with our partnership with Morehouse School of Medicine um, is um, culturally competent education. Um, and and um, how do we, again, inform our providers of the history, but then also what are some of the things that you can do differently uh, when engaging with different um, community members um, that may not look like you?
0: Yeah. How does bias play out in the care delivery process? Yes. Right. It's something yes. hugely important for, for caregivers and, and the clinical workforce to understand today. Yes. And
1: at the same time, how do we continue to increase the number of diverse provider care providers? Um, mm-hmm. And so that's the Absolutely. other part of our, our relationship with, with Morehouse is um, creating these regional medical campuses so that we can continue to grow the number of uh, underrepresented uh, minorities in in medicine. So um, so there's that uh, work that's happening, um, and at the same time, there there is the the uncomfortable conversation that we sometimes have to have around there are people who experience care differently in the healthcare system at large um, when they come through our care delivery walls, right? And, and sometimes that is based on how they look or where they come from. And and to your point, we have to recognize this unconscious bias um, that exists. And um, But in, but this is an area where I think standardization can be really helpful to help mitigate that. So if we have... Back to systemness. <laughs> back to systemness. So if we have standard evidence-based clinical protocols that say every patient every time, um, yeah. that should help mitigate that. But one of the things that we have to do is then uh, make sure, from an accountability standpoint, uh, and this goes back to data. As you can see, my two my two favorite things here uh, <laughs> make sure that those um, standards are being delivered consistently, right? Um, and so, I, I think there is um, clearly so much that we can do, um, and and so excited to work for Lloyd, who is just uh, an amazing CEO who's really pushing the pushing us, right? He's he's calling yeah. us out, and he's he's pushing us in, in this space.
0: Well, I think Common Spirit is definitely an organization to watch here. Before I let you go, I do want to ask you the final question that I ask all of my guests. Based on this conversation, is there one takeaway or one action item that you want our listeners to focus on?
1: Yes. Yeah, so one of my favorite Edward Deming's quote, and many of people on the The listening will know him some as the father of quality improvement. Um, He stated that every system is perfectly designed to get the results it gets. Every system is perfectly designed to get the results it gets. So we have in this country systems that were designed to perpetuate inequity. Um, and, And I think we have to be really honest about that. Um, we have a healthcare delivery system that's been built on treating illness and treating disease, right? Um, and what we really need to do, we are at this moment in time where we have to redesign uh, systems. Uh, you know, we, ca- we can't keep leading in these broken systems. We really have to take an innovative, bold approach to redesign systems for equity, um, to redesign systems for justice and ultimately to move into um, systems that really do pro- promote health and wellness, not just for our patients, but for the larger community. So that's my challenge. Let's Let's stop bleeding in these broken systems and, and start really uh, redesigning and recreating systems that ultimately uh, improve the health for all
0: of us. I could not agree more. Thank you so much, Alicia, for coming on Radio Advisory. Thank you, Ray. We'll be right back with what our research team is watching this week. Of all the questions we're getting asked right now, the biggest one has to be, when will this pandemic end? Well, we're starting to enter a phase in which pandemic progress is actually likely to stall. Just as Brandy and I predicted, we're starting to have more supply of doses than demand to get vaccinated. And while the US has made clear progress, we are still nowhere near herd immunity. And across the world, vaccination challenges continue. We think the next step is a hybrid approach. If we have any chance of getting to herd immunity, vaccine strategy is going to have to be hyper-local and more global than ever. That means leaders must focus their efforts in areas where people in their community are still resistant to vaccination, especially in areas where demand is lagging like in rural communities. And at the same time, we need to focus on where supply desperately lags behind demand, which is across the world. Because unchecked global surges like the one we're seeing in India and emerging variants across multiple countries will limit everyone's ability to reach herd immunity. So no matter where you're listening from, remember, we are here to help. Really? Oh, I thought it was so long. Okay, well I'll say I'll say the whole thing then. Well, good job, Ray. I summarized a whole blog post into these bullets. So,